This week we will be continuing on in our grateful series and looking at the aspect of being grateful through true contentment. And you know, this topic of contentment is especially pertinent this time of year as we enter into the holidays. Uh, we have Thanksgiving coming up where everyone sits around the ta- dinner table and they state what they're thankful for. But then throughout the conversation and eating, they go on and on about the discontentment and difficulties that they've had in their lives that year. And I'm thankful for my health, but man, my retirement took a hit this year, or I didn't earn that bonus that I wanted, or we couldn't afford to take that trip that we planned, on and on. It's easy, you know, to list the things that we perceive to be lacking or missing out on. It's also that time of year where consumerism and stuff and shopping uh, kind of take center stage. Black Friday and Cyber Monday ads, uh, they show you all the deals for the things that you can have for an amazing price. We look at all the toys and gadgets and gifts and gizmos to buy. We make lists of all the things uh, that we want, and we send it to our parents and our grandparents, our friends and our teachers, and anyone that we think might add our wants to their shopping cart. If you have room in your cart, see me after. We can talk. Uh, but contentment or lack of it, you know, it's, it's especially pertinent now. You know, we look at, uh, we might be looking at the economy or uh, the decisions of our government, our leaders that are making for our nation as we consider current events, both domestically and globally. And we can be decidedly discontent with what we're hearing or seeing in a way that affects us. So this is a good time to visit and maybe revisit, you know, what does it mean to be content? When should we be content? You know, how can we learn to be content? And where do we look to find true contentment, contentment which is ultimately tied to living those lives uh, with a grateful heart? So today we'll be starting off in Philippians chapter 4. And as you turn there in your Bible or click there on your device, uh, let's come before the Lord in prayer. Father God, we glorify you, Lord. We worship you. Worthy are you, Lord. Great and majestic, holy and mighty, we delight in you, Lord, and in your goodness. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for uh, blessing us with it, Lord. Uh, Give us understanding this morning uh, from it as we consider this aspect of contentment. Open our hearts, Lord. Give us ears to hear. Allow your spirit to guide us. And direct us, Lord, we ask. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. It says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In verse, Paul, or in verse 10 there, Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And Paul wrote these words while living under house arrest in Rome. And of course, as we see all throughout the book of Philippians, what's he's doing? He's rejoicing. And in this case, he's rejoicing because the church in Philippi uh, took up a collection to help pay for his housing and his expenses, and they sent Epaphroditus to bring him that gift. 
And so here we have him expressing gratefulness to God in meeting his needs through the Philippian believers again at this time. It's been some, some years since their last gift, uh, but God has revived their uh, concern for him like a plant that sat dormant all winter and is now blooming again in the spring. And notice how gracious he is here. These Philippians who had initially supported him, then hadn't in years, have now sent him a gift. And he's very gracious in his response. He says, at length you revived revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. You know, he's saying, you didn't have the means to support me, even though I'm assuming you wanted to. And thank you now for the gift that you're able to send. There's no question from him, you know, why the support was withheld or, nor any intentional embarrassment, uh, you know, to them. Maybe they didn't have the means. Maybe they'd gotten complacent. But what a gracious and thankful response from him. The fact is, though, that regardless of whether or not uh, they sent him a gift, Paul is content. He has needs, of course, but he doesn't consider himself to be in need. Verse 11 there says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And that's quite an amazing statement, actually. In whatever situation I am, I am content. How many of us can say that? Don't raise your hands. You'll make the rest of us feel bad. But in our, in our culture, here in our country, there does seem to be very little uh, contentment. Few are content with what they have. You know, we live in a consumeristic society. Our, our country's economy is based on spending, buying more and more. And everyone compares their house, their car, their body, their success to their neighbors and thinking that we need to have that too or we need to achieve that. We buy into the American dream that we should be able to live comfortably with big houses and nice cars and a wealthy retirement fund. And when that doesn't happen, we get disappointed. You know, there's when the stock market tanks or there's nothing left after paying the bills or we can't give our kids all the latest toys, we can't upgrade our car to the latest model, we're disappointed and we're discontent and we can become focused on how to obtain these things. We might end up spending outside of our means and take on debt because we make these things a necessity in our minds. Or, ironically, the more we have, the more we obtain, the less content we actually become. You think about Paul and the situation that he's been in as he writes this. You know, as he says, in whatever situation I am content. He's been shipwrecked, what, like three times at this point? He's been beaten up and thrown out of cities, jailed on numerous occasions. He didn't work a high-paying job. When he was at Corinth, he was making tents. And lately as he writes this, he's been chained to a Roman guard for two years. And yet if Paul was discontent in any of these situations... It means that he would rather be someplace other than where God put him. Paul is content in whatever situation God places him. When he's brought low, I imagine being chained to a guard for two years qualifies as being brought low. And Paul is content. When there's an abundance, Paul is content. When he's hungry or when there's plenty of food in the pantry, when there's an abundance, when the bank account is full or when there is need and the bank account is empty before the next paycheck, he is content. Have you ever wished for different circumstances or been discontent with the phase of life that you're in or you can't get past, you know, can't wait to get past the current situation? We all have been at various times. And we can be encouraged to follow Paul's example of contentment in any situation that we face. 
But in case you think that Paul's just a super Christian in this area, he's not. Paul says he has learned to be content in any situation. In fact, he says it twice for good measure. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Contentment doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come naturally to us. It didn't come naturally to Paul. He had to learn it. He didn't learn that from society. He didn't learn it from his upbringing or from the Rabbi Kamaliel that he studied under. He learned this from being a disciple of Jesus. He learned this through experiences of abundance and need, more and less, and learning that in those situations, Christ was sufficient. In every time of need, in every time of plenty, in every situation, having Christ was enough. That's true contentment, brothers and sisters. When we recognize the providential hand of God in our lives, in every situation, and the peace we experience, that no matter the ups and downs of life, because there is one thing that will never change, and that is the all-sufficiency of Christ. There's nothing lacking when we have Christ. Jesus says in John 10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And like Paul, we need to learn this. Rarely are we thankful or content with the difficult situations we're in. Maybe we're content in the abundant situations. But how about the hard ones, the challenging ones? Jesus exemplified contentment in every situation, didn't he? We don't read about Jesus complaining ever. He didn't say, it's too hot, my feet hurt. These crowds of people won't leave me alone. I left heaven's glory to come down and be a man, to be a servant. This stinks. No. He didn't say any of that. Even when he was going to the cross, he doesn't complain. He says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But yet not my will, Father, but yours be done. Paul can be content because the all-sufficiency of Jesus was sufficient for every situation in his life. Nothing else was needed. Christ was sufficient for every situation, every phase of life, every trial he went through, every moment. And his sufficiency is enough for us too. He is enough. Having him causes our cup to overflow. And I don't need a house that doesn't leak when it rains in order to be content. I don't need to have the latest car to be content. I don't have to wait for my kids to be older or better behaved or healthy to be content. I have Jesus. And he is enough. He is enough. And Paul knew that Jesus was enough. Paul understood the secret to facing every situation. It's a secret because it doesn't come naturally to us. You don't know the secret until you've experienced Christ's all-sufficiency in every situation. And that aspect of the, the secret here carries the context of being initiated into mysteries. You know, back in Paul's time, there were pagan religions that when you joined, there would be an initiation process where the mysteries of that religion would be revealed to you. They weren't just revealed to regular people. But the only initiation that Paul had to go through and that we have to go through to learn the secret is to know and follow Jesus. That's it. William Hendrickson, in his commentary on Philippians, wrote, To those that fear him, God reveals this mystery. Reference to Psalm 25, 14. Those who reject Christ cannot understand how it is possible for a Christian to remain calm in adversity, humble in prosperity. What is the secret mystery? 
And Paul spills the beans on it in verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can abound. I can endure. I can be content because it's not the circumstances that dictate how I live. It's Christ who strengthens me in each and every circumstance. And Paul doesn't say I may or might do all things, which would imply permission. He says I can do all things, which means we have the ability to do all things through him who strengthens us. He says I can do. I can do all things, referring to power or strength. He says he possesses the strength to do all things. All things, of course, are all things that are in the will of God, things that glorify God. And it's all through Christ. John fifteen five, Jesus says, what? Apart from me, you can do nothing. The strength isn't just a superficial, surface-level work on us. It goes deep. It's not the ability to put on a facade of joy when we're facing a tough situation. It's by the work of the Holy Spirit in the deepest parts of our hearts, changing us, teaching us to rely on the strength of the Lord. He's conforming our wills to him, enabling us to find contentment in knowing Christ, regardless of whether we're in times of abundance or in times of need. You know what the opposite of contentment is? It's discontentment. It's anxiousness. It's worry. It's that load on your mind about a situation. If you look at what Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 about that worry and anxiousness, Matthew six, thirty-five to 33, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If you're sitting here this morning and you've been anxious, you've been worried, you've got a burden on your mind about how things are going to work out, you're worried about your health or your job, Jesus has a kind word for us here. Don't, do not be anxious. Life is more than just working to make ends meet, to keep food on the table and clothes on the family. Yes, those things are necessary, but look at the birds. They don't work, and yet our good Father feeds them. Look at the flowers, how they grow and bloom. They aren't making clothes. They're clothed by a good God a God who cares even about the flowers that are here today and gone tomorrow. And if God in his goodness provides for them, then he's going to provide for you too. He knows your needs. He knows you need to eat. He knows it's not good for you to run around town naked because you can't afford clothes. doesn't mean he's going to dress you in Gucci and Prada, though. (laughs) Food, water, clothing, housing, the necessities, that's what we need to live. 
And the difference here isn't God's provision, though. It's our perspective. What are our eyes on? There's a perspective that the anxious have. Verse 31, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? He says the world seeks after these things. The world is focused on them, prioritizing them, anxious about getting them or getting more of them or getting nicer ones. But that's not to be us, though. You look at the four questions that Jesus asks here to drive this point home. God feeds the birds. Aren't you of more value than they? Or by being anxious, can you add an hour to your lifespan? Why are you anxious about your clothes? Even the flowers are clothed in beautiful petals. And finally, if God clothes the plants, which come and go, grow and die, here today and gone tomorrow, don't you think he'll clothe you? You who are made in the image of God. You in whom God delights. You who God doesn't need, but he created for his own glory. You who are included in the plan he ordained before time began to send his son to purchase our redemption. Don't you think he'll take care of you? He will. Therefore, do not be anxious, Jesus says. And so there's a, another perspective here, a contented perspective based on faith and trust in a good father that knows our needs. And we gain that perspective when we raise our eyes from being focused on the earthly things to being focused on the heavenly ones. That's verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek after his righteousness. Find contentment in him, in pursuing him, and not on the earthly things that our society chases after. We are citizens of God's kingdom, sons and daughter of a good father that delights in us, knows our every need, and is powerful to provide. Seek after him, and you will find rest. You will find the anxiousness and worry about these things gone when seeking him first. All those other things, he'll take care of them. Don't worry about them. Our contentment isn't tied to them anyways. Our contentment isn't found in them. It's in him. You know, being content with the essentials doesn't mean that we need to live as destitute minimalists either. You know, we don't have to jump on the trend of living in a tiny house, sleep, living, sleeping, eating, bathing all in a single area. Food, shelter, and clothing, they're not set here as being the max that a Christian should have. We should enjoy the good gifts that we receive from him above and beyond that. So there isn't a call here to a life of abstinence from anything beyond the essentials, but we are to be content with just the essentials. We are to be content knowing that our provision comes from God and not from us chasing after material things. But we're prone to do that, aren't we? We're like a little cat chasing around that dot from a laser pointer trying to pounce on whatever we can get. You know, how many Christians are busy building a comfortable life, building up a retirement fund, upgrading their possessions so that they lose focus on the one in whom their contentment is founded on and they're focused instead on the immaterial world. There's far too many. Our understanding of God's provision should impact our spending and our approach to material possessions. You remember what Job said when he lost all his material possessions. Job 121, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You think you could say that? This material world is temporary. Our possessions are temporary. They come and go. 
cars rust and break down, technology becomes obsolete, clothes wear out, investments can get wiped out. Contrary to how our country has been printing money the past decade, the money supply isn't endless. And then we, our focus on all of these things was wasted. We can't use them as a basis for anything. They're hay and stubble. So where do we put our focus? Seek first the kingdom of God. And we follow Jesus' words earlier on in Matthew 6, in verses 19 to 21. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When we trust in God's provision and we're not worrying or being anxious about material, play, material things, when we seek God first in his kingdom, when our treasure in heaven is in heaven, that's a contented place to be. So contentment is not situational, but it, it can be learned. And it's something that we learn through experience. And contentment is not being worried or anxious but contentment is linked to godliness, to godliness. You think back on our series on the pastoral epistles when we came uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and Paul was warning Timothy against anyone who would come at the church with false teaching, with another gospel, you know, teaching that doesn't agree with the sound words of Christ or accords with godliness. He said those people are dangerous. They have an unhealthy craving for controversy, quarrels, and ultimately, they're depraved in mind and depraved, uh, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And Paul has a pretty low view of these false teachers, ending his surmising of them by saying that they're imagining that godliness is a means to gain. They're selling a false gospel, and they're hoping to profit from it. But Paul gives us a better take to be had on the gain to be had from godliness. In 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10, it says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these will we, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless, uh, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. There is a gain to be had from godliness, but when it's mixed with contentment. Godliness plus contentment is great gain. But unlike these false teachers who are hoping to gain financially, Paul's referring to spiritual gain, isn't he? Godly living, growing in Christ, those things bring great spiritual gain. Paul says that earlier on in 1 Timothy 4, uh, starting in uh, the end of 7. He says, Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Exercise and bodily training, he says, have some value. Godliness, godly living, is of value in every way. It holds promise and spiritual benefit for this present life, and for the life to come once we are with Christ in glory. So godliness is a great gain with contentment. Godliness is a spiritual gain, provided you are content with what you have and you're not looking for material gain. Why is that? 
Verse 7, we can't gain and hold on to anything in this material world. For we were brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of this world. There's a newsflash here. You can't take your car to heaven. You know, drive that guzzler and dirty up the streets of gold. You can't, you, know, you can't take your crypto or your 401k or your IRA or your bank account to heaven. Who are you going to pay with that? You're surrounded by the saints. The Bible says whose God will supply every need of theirs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19. You can't take your house that you've spent hundreds of hours and thousands of dollars fixing and decorating and cleaning and maintaining. Jesus said in John 14.2, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? You think your house is nicer than what awaits us in glory? We can't bring these things with them, with us. So we shouldn't base our contentment on them. And that's why Paul says in verse 8, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. We can be content because our contentment isn't found in the material things, and it isn't based on what situation we're in in the moment. It's based on Christ. It's based on trusting in the provision of a good father, and giving over control of situations, outcomes, needs to him as we lift them up in prayer. The flip side of that trusting perspective is that desire to accumulate material things, a desire to be rich, to get just one more thing, to get to a certain retirement balance, to get that bigger house that I need. But in verse 9 and 10, it's, you know, it's a snare, it's a trap. It says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The desire to be rich is a trap. It doesn't say being rich. Again, there are believers who are rich and poor materially in this world, but the desire to be rich is a trap. It starts with a desire. And then what does it say? It leads to more senseless and harmful desires, which eventually leads them to ruin and then to destruction. It says the love of money, not money itself, but the love of it is the basis for all sorts of evil. You don't rob a bank if you don't love what's in the bank. That's, that craving of money has drawn people away from the faith and it pierced them with many pangs, it says. It's impossible to be truly content when your desire and your focus is on money, wealth, and accumulating in the here and now. And so this is an opportunity for a heart check for all of us, an evaluation of our hearts, of our satisfaction, of our contentment. They say your priorities are reflected through the transactions of your, in your bank account. Maybe I'm trusting the overall balance to God, but there's a glutinous spending on myself. It's easy to fall into, you know, Two clicks on Amazon, and I can buy yet another pocket knife and have her delivered same day. It's probably knife number 50, but I definitely need this one. <laughs> no, I don't. You know, Tom and I were chatting the other day because just like I felt like finding cool pocket knives, he likes finding flashlights. Flashlights is another word for clicking by. But we came to the conclusion that just because you can't have too many pocket knives or flashlights, it also doesn't mean that you need another one, you know? Sometimes we prioritize things to the detriment of others. Maybe I'm so focused on building wealth or saving for a house that I do so at the expense of forgetting to be generous 
where I live with a heart trying to control and gain the material things as a means of fighting satisfaction and contentment. We each need to do our own evaluation here and confess the areas in which we've allowed riches or material things to become unhealthy desires. Now, not all contentment is healthy contentment either when that contentment turns into complacency, that smug satisfaction, you know, sense of satisfaction or an attitude of, I'm, I'm okay where I'm at. I'm, I'm content to stay here. I'm not going to try to move on. And we replace contentment with an attitude of complacency. And there are numerous areas of our lives where we shouldn't be content. We shouldn't be content with sin in our lives. We who have been saved from the penalty of our sin, our justification, and we're continually being saved from the power of sin, our sanctification, and one day we'll be saved from the presence of sin, that final glorification. We cannot be content with sin. That's what Romans 6 tells us. Uh, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Romans 6.12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Paul, as he wrote the book of Romans, wasn't at all content with sin. He describes that war between his sinful nature and his delight in the law of God in Romans 7. He cries out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's not content to allow sin to reign. But praise God for Romans 8, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We are set free. Don't be content with sin. Don't become complacent in the ongoing war against it. We're also not to be complacent or to get content with our walk, in our walk with Christ. Paul wasn't content with his walk with Christ either. Earlier on in Philippians chapter 3, he writes in verses 12 to 14, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Paul's not perfect yet, but he is pressing on. Jesus captured Paul's life, his heart, made him his own on that road to Damascus. And now Paul is pressing in to walk with him, to live for him, to be like him, to cling to him each and every day. And Paul isn't content. He hasn't become complacent in his pursuit of Christ. As he writes this, Paul is still pursuing growing in Christ. He's still being sanctified. He's still being formed further to be like Christ. He hasn't arrived yet in terms of the Christian life, but it's his goal, his pursuit in life. And here he has a healthy discontent which prevents complacency. We look at his perspective here. Christ has made me his own, so I will make him my own. And to be clear, his salvation occurred when Christ made him his own. So Paul isn't speaking here of earning his salvation he is responding to Christ making his, him his own by an all-out effort of his life to pursue and to follow after Christ. Christ has made us his own, brothers and sisters. So what's our response? Do our lives reflect a proportional response? Christ gave us his all. Do we give him our all? Or do we get complacent and comfortable? 
Life is pretty cozy here. We're surrounded by walls of comfort and societal norms. And Paul has that healthy discontent. There's more to be found in Christ. And so what does he do? Forgetting what lies behind him, he strains forward to what lies ahead. And this is possible because Paul has a goal. He's in pursuit of knowing Christ completely, being like Christ completely. That goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Those goals are indicators that you're not content. You don't work out because you're content with where you're at, right? You work out because you want to bulk up or you want to slim down or you want to be able to lift a heavier weight or run a further distance or allow yourself to eat more. Paul had a goal to be like Christ, and he didn't reach that goal in his lifetime. None of us, none of us will entirely, but his eyes were on that prize. And when he finished, crossed that finish line and he entered heaven, he was reunited with Christ face-to-face, finally being made like him after striving all those years to be like him. That is a worthy prize. So the Christian life isn't complacent, right? It's pressing, pressing. It's pressing towards Christ, not to earn our salvation, but to know him more and more and to be more and more like him, making this our goal. And at that finish line, when we are given the prize, we will then hear, well done, good and faithful servant. As we press towards Christ, we will not be disappointed by what we will find. True, lasting contentment is found in Christ. It's found in him alone. He is the one that satisfies our hearts. In him are endless blessings, spiritual riches, and an incorruptible inheritance. In him we find mercy and grace and peace, and we experience endless joy. Nothing else satisfies like Christ. Nowhere else will we find anything that compares to the sweetness of knowing him. And so if our eyes are trained on him and not on the material things, if our lives are pressing into him, we will find true, sweet, enduring contentment. You want to know what we have in Christ? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, that wonderful passage lays it out for us. Starting in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him also, you, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. That is what we have in Christ, brothers and sisters. 
God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How could we ever be discontent with that? He doesn't even say some spiritual blessings or many spiritual blessings, but every spiritual blessing. Those blessings that come to us who have been redeemed, who are found in Christ, the blessings of grace, of mercy, of peace, of growing in Christ, having an eternal home waiting for us in glory, they are all ours. It says God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. You are chosen by God. And he did that before anything even existed. Chosen not to continue to be those who are dead in sin and trespass, but made alive in him to be holy and blameless before him. And that's all on account of Christ. We should be be beyond content with that. We should be overjoyed in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In love, he determined that he would adopt us as spiritual sons and daughters. And what a love that was. Not a general love. I can love all your kids, and I do, but I have a special love for my own kids. And God, in his love, determined to adopt you and me as sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ. And when you're tempted to be discontented about a situation, remember, you are a son. You are a daughter of God the Father. And he has specifically chosen you out of his great love for himself through Jesus Christ. Rest in that. Rejoice in that. Find contentment in that. It says, God did this according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. It's all because of grace, which he has blessed us with in the beloved Jesus Christ. Verse 7 there, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In Christ we have redemption. That payment, that cost was far greater than we could ever pay. It was a far greater price than we could ever fathom. The payment made by the very blood of Christ for our trespasses. And when the Father sees us redeemed by the blood of his Son, he is content with the penalty paid on our behalf. He is content with the finished work of Christ. His wrath against our sin fully and completely satisfied. And now we have forgiveness according to the riches of his grace. It says in verse 11, In Christ we've obtained an inheritance. There's an inheritance awaiting us in glory, awaiting the sons and daughters of God, awaiting those who have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. His inheritance is a far better one than we could ever hope to receive here on earth. The ones here are made of material things, They cannot compare to the inheritance that the Father has in store for us. We can be content with whatever possessions we have, with food and water and shelter and clothes, because we know there is a rich inheritance awaiting us. It's incorruptible. It won't wear out. It won't rust. It won't be spent before we get there. It is a glorious inheritance. And it's God himself who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, as Colossians 1.12 tells us. And in Christ we've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, those he chose before the foundations of the world, those he predestined for adoption as sons and daughters of God. When we heard the word of truth, 
the gospel and our eyes were opened and we believed in him, at that moment the Holy Spirit put his seal, his mark on us. We are his. The seal of the Holy Spirit giving us full assurance that the inheritance that awaits us, it's guaranteed. It will be waiting there until that day when we enter his presence and we see Christ face to face and we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So where does your contentment lie? Are there situations where you've struggled in being content or have failed to be content, looking to the physical things that's to satisfy? Do you recognize that true contentment is not based on our situations, but true contentment is learned through them as we experience the all-sufficiency of Christ in every situation? Have you been anxious or worried instead of having a contented trust in the one who upholds all things by the word of his great power? Do we desire the spiritual gain that's to be had from godliness when it's mixed with contentment? Do we desire that? Maybe we've grown complacent and content in areas we shouldn't have, content in our sin or complacent in our marriages, settling into comfort and ease in our manner of living instead of pressing into Christ as our all in all. I pray that wherever you're at, whether you need to be reminded about what it means to be content or whether you're truly living a contented life, that you would be encouraged and grateful to be reminded that true, lasting contentment is found in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.